You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. So as Harold mentioned last, uh, last week, in these um, few Sundays leading up to uh, Christmas, uh, we've decided to kind of take, uh, take a few Sundays and just look at the major characters of the Christmas story. So last week, uh, Harold spoke about Joseph, uh, and then this week, we're going to talk about Mary. And on Friday evening, um, Darcy is going to, uh, to center his uh, message around the one who it's all about, Jesus. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this morning, uh, we're going we're gonna to take a little bit of look at Mary and focus on Luke chapter 1. Um, now, Harold rightly pointed out last week uh, that the Gospels actually don't tell us a whole lot about um, Mary and Joseph, um, in particular Joseph. Uh, he's not really mentioned outside the first couple chapters of Matthew and Luke, and John and Mark really just make a couple passing references to him. Uh, Mary, we hear more about through the adult life of Jesus, you know, in the different narratives. She shows up a few more times. There might be a number of reasons for that. Um, but regardless, we kind of feel a little bit more familiar with the story of Mary. Um, but in the context of Jesus' origin, origin story, as it were, the, the, the nativity narrative, we actually still don't get a huge amount of information about Mary. Um, she's a character in the story for sure. Uh, but it's obvious that the gospel writers, um, when they were telling the, the good news, were far more concerned with the Christ child himself, rightly so, than they were with his parents. Um, nevertheless, in, in Luke chapter 1 and 2, we, we do have a little window into Mary's experience of the events that led up to Christ's birth. And there's certainly a few things about the story that I think are worth considering. Uh, so this morning, we're going to jump off from that scripture that we just heard read in Luke chapter 1. We're going to focus on Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel. And actually, as, I, as we start this morning, I figured we'd actually start where Harold left off last week and where we closed the service last week. We closed with um, a well-known carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The first verse of the song goes like this. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This first verse kind of sets up a picture in our mind, right? Like it's one of a sleepy little town in the hill country of Judah. It's not a bustling, big uh, culture and trend-setting city um, that never sleeps. It's the kind of place where everything closes early and you can see the stars super well because there's no light pollution. Now, for whatever reason, when I was thinking about Bethlehem this week, I uh, thought of the town Dog River from the, the, uh, TV, uh, or the Canadian TV sitcom Corner Gas. Uh, if you've never seen it, it's a, it's a sitcom about small-town life in Saskatchewan, right? Um, the show centers around the day-to-day -day interactions of this fictional town, Dog River. Um, it's a middle-of-nowhere town, and it kind of the whole show kind of hams up um, the comedic value of, of small-town, slow-paced life. Um, and there's actually a line in the theme song for that show that says this, you think there's not a lot going on, but look closer, baby, you're so wrong. And in a way, that's what this Christmas carol is saying, right? O little town of Bethlehem, how, how still we see thee lie is the first line. And then there's the line, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. Bethlehem might have been a small middle of nowhere town, but it in it, something big was happening that first Christmas evening, right? Through the darkness of the streets pierced the light of the world. 
And the carol kind of echoes the prophecy of Micah chapter five, verse two, which says, but you, O Bethlehem of Athra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. You know, in ancient Israel, um, King David was an unlikely choice uh, to be the king of Israel, right? Like he was a young shepherd boy, the youngest of his family. And his choice, or God's choice of him to be king kind of foreshadows the unlikely choice of this sleepy little town, Bethlehem, as the birthplace of the Messiah. And this archetype of big things, big, important, significant things coming from small, unlikely places, I mean, doesn't that sort of ring true with the story of Mary as well? I mean, it's not that we should be terribly surprised at this point. This is sort of what the kingdom of God is is like after all, isn't it? Like, remember a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about the parable of the mustard seed, that large, expansive, sheltering plant that comes from just a tiny seed. And in so many ways, Mary was not the likely choice to bear the Messiah. As far as we know, she was just a regular Jewish girl. Uh, She's not necessarily from an impressive or rich or noble family. Um, She doesn't her family doesn't have political influence of any kind, really, but, but a rural, she's a rural girl engaged to a blue-collar man. Now, don't mishear me. It's not as if any of those things are wrong. Not at all. But by the world's standards, she's not necessarily an outstanding prospect to win the Miss Mother of the Most High contest. And Luke introduces us uh, to her in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And we read this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Like, this is really the introduction we get to Mary. This is the information we have. It's not a whole lot. We know she's from Nazareth. We know she's a virgin. We know she's engaged to be married to this man named Joseph. I mean, later in the passage, we find out that she's a relative of Elizabeth, Uh, who is going to be the mother of John the Baptist. Um, Based on the historical context, as we heard a little bit about last week, it's likely that she is a young girl, uh, a teenager, perhaps 16 at the oldest. Um, And it's it's only through small details in stories recorded later in the Gospels that we find out that her fiancé, Joseph, was a carpenter or a mason or a metal worker. We don't really know. The Greek is sort of ambiguous. It just means craftsman or common worker, really. He was a blue-collar man. By all accounts, there's nothing particularly special about this couple. Um, They're a standard Israelite family, probably living a routine Israelite life, pursuing the Israelite dream, as it were. They're not from a big city, not in the middle of the cultural scene, and actually, Nazareth is really just a small agricultural village um, in the first century. It's nothing much to speak about. It's not on any main road. It's 70 miles north of, of Jerusalem, outside of Jewish mainstream life. And actually, there may have been um, a sort of sense of disdain for someone that came from Nazareth, as if, like, if you came from Nazareth, you had grown up on the wrong side of the tracks, in a sense. It's maybe a little bit of an extrapolation, but we get, we get this idea when Philip, in the story of uh, Philip telling Nathaniel that Jesus is the Messiah and he comes from Nazareth, and Nathaniel reacts and says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And again, I was thinking about corner gas because 
there's this theme throughout this whole show where the residents of Dog River have a disdain for the people of the neighboring small town, Woolerton. In fact, every time uh, that the name Woolerton is spoken in the show, all the characters from Dog River would instinctively spit, like, ah, oh, you're from Woolerton? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And it's almost as though this is what Nathaniel is saying, the Messiah from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And yet this is the little town that Mary calls home. You know, scripture doesn't really indicate anything negative or really positive about her life before this moment. Um, it doesn't really give us any information to write home about. Again, by all accounts, she's just living this quiet, insignificant life before we meet her in Luke chapter one. But then God sends this angel, Gabriel, to her, and uh, we read in Luke chapter one, verses 28 and following. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary may not have been significant, but she was seen. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Luke tells us that Mary was greatly troubled when she hears this greeting. She's not exactly sure what to make of it. Now, Luke doesn't really explain why, but perhaps it's because she doesn't feel particularly favored. Maybe she's thinking, yeah, me? Yeah, right. Like hardly, I'm just a girl destined for a life of chores and raising children. And, and maybe she was okay with that. Perhaps she was even excited about it, or maybe she was dreading it. We don't know for sure. But she does seem to be confused by the angel's greeting. But Gabriel's greeting was what it was. You have found favor with God. Mary was seen by the Lord. And I think this is a spectacular encouragement that we can take from her story. Like, do you feel significant these days? Perhaps not. Perhaps you feel really small. Maybe people have made you feel that way by what they've said or what they haven't said. Maybe you've got some self-imposed expectations of what you could be or what you should be and you've not lived up to them and you're wondering if you're worth anything after all. Like sometimes we get caught up in the mundane, the regular, the grind of life and we lose our uh, sense of drive and our sense of purpose and our sense of meaning and we wonder what all of this is about. We might not feel significant but the Lord sees us. Now at Citizens, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of young mothers here, and I expect it might feel like an understatement to say that you feel overwhelmed at times. Maybe motherhood can feel like an endless stream of, of diapers and dishes and chores and cleanup, and you feel more like hired help than anything else. And then someone says something about your parenting style, and you just wanna crawl into a hole and never come out. You might feel small, but you are seen. Or maybe, maybe you're a young man or woman. You either desire a family or you don't, but you're in this rural Christian community where folks get married and have kids while they are still children themselves. And you feel a little bit smaller and a little bit less valuable every time somebody wonders why there's still no boyfriend or girlfriend and there's still no kids and it feels like they're looking right past you, waiting for you to grow up to be worthy but you're just waiting to be worth something right where you are. You might feel small, but you are seen. Maybe you're stuck. Maybe you're working away, making decent money, trying to enjoy this season, but deep down, you feel like there's got to be something more. 
Maybe you've lost your drive. Maybe opportunities you thought you would have haven't materialized. Maybe you're frustrated and you're not sure what you have to offer. You might feel small, but you are seen. Perhaps you're grinding away at a job just trying to do right by your family, to raise your kids right, to love your spouse. But there's days that you feel lost and incapable and exhausted. You might feel small, but you are seen. And I want to take a minute as well to think about, you know, the kids and teenagers in our midst, right? I don't know, maybe, maybe you come here Sunday mornings and they, they, or they go to, they go to their parent or go to missional family with their parents and they feel like they're just a spectator with us adults as we do this church thing. We're all different. All of our childhoods are slightly different. So I don't know what it's, ex- what's exactly going through, you know? The, the heads of, of kids these days, right? Like what, they, what, what kids these days deal with is, is so different than what us adults deal with on a day-to-day basis. But everybody's valuable to God. Everybody's seen by him. He made us, he knows us, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And our relationship with him can start at any point in our lives. Maybe it's gonna feel and look a little bit different for everybody but he wants every one of us just as much as he wants the rest of us. We never need to feel like we don't have anything to offer. We never need to feel like we, we, we can't participate. We shouldn't look, nobody should let anybody look down on them because they are young. We are all meaningful, real parts of this family and God doesn't wait to use us. I mean, think about Mary. She was just a teenager. Maybe she was 16. And an angel showed up and said, yep, you're going to have a kid. And he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to save people from their sins. Now, odds are Gabriel's not going to show up and say that to any of us. Right? This whole virgin birth thing was kind of a one-time deal. The point is that we don't have to be grown up, fully mature in our faith and perfect before God is capable of or interested in working through us. Remember that little mustard seed that we talked about a few weeks ago. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Starts with something small and insignificant and brings something huge from it. The best of things can come from the most unexpected places. Jesus came from Mary, a teenage girl from a small town. Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, verse 26, or 27, sorry. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. It's not hard to see the connection to Mary's story, is it? She probably wasn't wise according to the world's standards. She probably wasn't powerful. She's not from noble birth. She probably would have been considered weak by many, but here's the thing, she was willing. See, God didn't need somebody who was perfect. He didn't need anyone particularly pious or gifted or noble. He just wanted somebody willing. Luke doesn't really give us any context for Mary's character before this story. There's nothing about her um, being particularly special or righteous. I mean, when he introduces Zachariah and Elizabeth earlier in Luke 1, he actually, um, he actually points out that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
but he says nothing of this kind about Mary. His silence on the matter doesn't necessarily mean that Mary was or wasn't particularly pious or righteous. It just means that it wasn't relevant. She was just a regular Jewish girl chosen by God's grace to do a not-so-regular thing in this critical moment of human history. There's nothing to suggest that Mary was perfect, but we do know that she was present. Mary wasn't without fault, but she was willing. After the angel Gabriel tells her that she would conceive this child, she asks how, you, like, you know that I'm a virgin, right? He explains that this, this child would not be conceived uh, in a typical fashion, but instead the Holy Spirit comes upon her, therefore the child is gonna be called holy, the son of God. And then in verse 38, Mary simply gives this response. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And as I've considered this passage, I am continually struck by this statement from Mary. It is right up there with some of the greatest expressions of faith and trust and willingness and self-sacrifice that we have in scripture. And all of it comes from a teenage girl. We don't know exactly how her betrothal um, to Joseph came to be. Uh, likely, to some degree, it was arranged. Hopefully, there was some consultation with her and Joseph. I do think it's reasonable to assume that she was probably looking forward to the next chapter in her life, right? She might have been dreaming about this since she was a little girl. I think it's fair to assume she didn't see the whole virgin birth thing coming. The scenario wasn't in her wedding and family planning scrapbook that she had been working on since childhood. She's probably thinking, I'm going to get married to Joseph. We're going to move in together. We're going to start a family. We're going to start this life. Our home's going to look like this. We're going to have this many kids. But all of that is interrupted by this announcement from the angel Gabriel. And ultimately, this is where Mary lands. This is her response. I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be. And it's in this response that I think we can see how Mary's faith should become a pattern for our own. Like, she wrestles through this whole passage, right? She doesn't come to this right away. First, she's kind of troubled by Gabriel's greeting, then kind of questions him a bit, but ultimately, she does land in this place of willing surrender, of faithful obedience. She hasn't just blindly leapt in, and yet, she does not have all the answers at this point. She doesn't know exactly how all this is going to play out, but she is, she's likely pretty aware of the personal risks that she's taking. Like, there are going to be whispers about her. Like, which was it? Was she unfaithful to Joseph? Or was this a shotgun wedding? Like, people are going to figure that one out, right? Like, people know how long a pregnancy is. They know when the wedding happened. They'd be able to compare dates, put it together, and people are going to talk, right? In a small town, wheels turn slow, but word travels fast. I think, it was, uh, I think it was with Sam and Georgia the other night, probably at, um, probably at Missional Family, and we were, we were joking about um, something called uh, the Mennonet. Right? Sometimes around here, news travels fast over the Mennonet than it does over the internet. You know, like, like Rick is at an auction a few hours away and he buys some equipment and somebody's cousin sees him and happens to call their uncle who's with their brother who's on the way to the shop and he lets the guys know that Rick has bought this equipment but Rick isn't even halfway home yet and when he finally does walk through the door, the guys are asking about it before he's even said hello. That's the Mennonite. <laughs> or there was one Sunday a while back where I was on my way to Woodside and I uh, was in a little bit of a rush and I maybe rolled through a stop sign and got pulled over. And I'm hanging my head in shame because I know there's cars going by me on their way to Woodside. 
and I can't even get there and sit down in a pew before someone's giving me a hard time about my ticket. These are some of the blessings of living in a small community, right? Everybody dies famous in a small town. And in that moment, Mary was risking a life of infamy, of disgrace. No matter how gracious or loving and forgiving a community is, she might forever be known as the woman who got pregnant out of wedlock. Whether it was Joseph's child or not, it's not a good look. But she says, I am a servant of the Lord, let it be. No matter what difficulties come my way, serving the Lord is worth it. And I'm willing to take that risk. And beyond just submitting, like, she actually comes to a point where she celebrates her position. Like, we heard read at the beginning of the service her song, The Magnificat, right? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. At that point, she's not thinking about being disgraced. No, she's She's celebrating what she considers to be this immense honor, this privilege, and this blessing. And again, she didn't arrive there all at once, did she? Like, this was a bit of a process in, in the passage. It was a progression. It starts with her being troubled by the greeting. Wait, me? I'm favored? Am I hearing this right? Like, there's this tendency towards self-deprecation. Like, no, I'm just a small, insignificant girl. I'm not seen by God. And then there's this obvious question of like, well, I'm a, I'm a virgin, like I'm not married yet, so how exactly is all of this going to come to pass? And the scripture actually like presents this as a totally fair question from Mary, right? In the, in the previous story about John the Baptist's miraculous conception, like uh, the angel reprimands Zachariah, right, for his lack of faith. But here, Gabriel doesn't reprimand Mary at all. You see, Mary is kind of working towards this surrender, this willingness, in a fairly like calculated and measured way. She doesn't blindly leap in without counting some of this cost, and yet she doesn't resist until she has figured every detail out. She doesn't have all the answers. She doesn't know exactly how this is going to end. But instead of, instead of responding in unbelief and fear and anxiety, she chooses belief, trust, and peace in the face of uncertainty. She probably hasn't stopped feeling small and insignificant and weak, but she has chosen to surrender to the God who sees her in that state and chose her anyway, to the Lord who has promised to fill her with himself. And so she decides to make room for the Lord, quite literally in some sense. By faith, Abraham was willing and he obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then he says, Here am I, send me. Mary joins their ranks in being a shining example of faith, trust, and obedience with her final words to the angel. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so once again, as we have as we've been in this place so many times when we studied the Gospel of Mark uh, together this fall. You know, we've come to this narrative in Scripture and we are kind of prompted to put ourselves into the story. Like, what about me? Am I going to follow the Lord in willing surrender? Am I going to run away from what he puts before me in unbelief, fear, and anxiety? Am I going to trust that the Lord can and will work in and through me despite my insignificance? 
Or am I going to believe the lies that the world has impressed upon me, that others have told about me, or that I've told myself? Am I going to let my plans and my life, no matter how reasonable and, and good and honorable they are, to be interrupted by him and his call to something higher? Am I going to be listening close enough to know his voice, even when it resembles a whisper in all of the noise around me? And of course, all of this might feel like a really tall order. Like whenever we look at heroes of the faith in scripture, you know, they're these unbelievable stories uh, where God does immense things through these people. And yes, they might, you know, they might have started out small, but they feel extreme and radical and, and perhaps a little bit unrelatable. Like, great, you know, an angel showed up to Mary, you know, just run-of-the-mill teenage stuff for her, but not for me. Like, I don't have that kind of faith. And that's an understandable objection, if you will. Like, purely statistically speaking, like, most of us are not going to have these kind of experiences. But don't make that a reason to throw out these stories as archetypes for the quality of our faith. This morning, we need to remind ourselves of two things. We need to remember the seed and remember the garden. So first, remember the seed. What is the kingdom of God like? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. God chose to use this rural teenage girl, a tiny mustard seed, if you will, to be the vehicle for one of the greatest miracles in all of history, the incarnation, God himself becoming one of us. And yeah, it, it does seem like her involvement in this story kind of went from like zero to 60 in the blink of an eye. And it's maybe not going to be that way in our lives. But he can and he wants to use us too, if we're willing. Regardless of how small we feel, he sees us. Regardless of how unlikely it seems or how impossible, the angel Gabriel said to Mary in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Remember the seed. It may start small, but it will grow. You may feel insignificant, but you are seen. And then second, remember the garden. What I mean is this. The thing that, that struck me about Mary's story, and in particular her expression of faith, is how closely it echoes the words of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane 33 years later. He go, he's about to go to the cross and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Mary's willing surrender was remarkable. But how much more was Christ's surrender on the cross? Tim Keller writes it this way. Mary made her surrender before knowing what Jesus was going to do for her. We know that for every sacrifice Mary made for him, Jesus made infinitely more for her. Mary accepted that she was going down in the world, but think of how far the Son of God came down from heaven to earth. In that brutal shame and honor culture, she knew that she was accepting God's will even at the risk of her life. But Jesus accepted God's will knowing it would cost him everything. But oh, look at the infinite, endless redemption that came out of his obedience. An eternal, an eternal weight of glory for us all. See, Mary was able to willingly surrender to the Lord without knowing the end of the story. She gave herself to him in hopeful expectation of what he would accomplish. 
But we know the end of the story. We know what he did at his first coming, and we know what he'll do at his second coming. So how much more then, considering these truths, should we willingly surrender to him now, knowing whatever momentary light affliction that we experience now, it is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that is being produced in us. With these things in mind, our celebration of the Advent season on this side of the cross rightly looks back towards what Jesus did, but it also looks forward to what he will do when he returns and puts every wrong right. And this hope, this expectant longing for what Christ will do, grounded in in the truth of what he has done, like this is our strength to say, just as Mary did and just as Jesus did, let it be according to thy word. To close this morning, I want to share some lyrics from a song that I was reminded of this week. It's, uh, it's one that I had to listen to carefully a few times before it really resonated with me, but I think it speaks incredibly well um, to Mary's heart. And it's, and it's a heart that I think that we should pray to be grown in us. Yes, it's a heart of measured doubt and skepticism, like why me? And yet, it's a heart that deeply desires to see the Lord's work done in and through her. The song is called uh, Be Born in Me. So just listen to the lyrics as I read them. I I couldn't really decide which ones to keep and which ones to cut, so I'm just going to read the whole song. Um, And as I do, just press in and reflect with me. Like, does this describe my heart? Despite my desire for my own comfort and reputation, despite my doubts, my insecurities, my feelings of insignificance, my questions, am I willing to make room for the Lord in big ways, but also in small and mundane corners of my heart and life. So as we consider these words together, let's turn them into a prayer as we look towards Christmas. Everything inside me cries for order. Everything inside me wants to hide. Is this shadow an angel or a warrior? If God is pleased with me, why am I so terrified? Someone tell me I'm only dreaming. Somehow help me see with heaven's eyes. And before my head agrees, my heart is on its knees. Holy is he, blessed am I. All this time we've waited for the promise. All this time you've waited for my arms. Did you wrap yourself inside the unexpected so we might know that love would go that far? I'm not brave, I'll never be. The only thing my heart can offer is a vacancy. I'm just a girl, nothing more, but I am willing, I am yours. Be born in me be born in me. Trembling heart, somehow I believe that you chose me. I'll hold you in the beginning, you will hold me in the end. Every moment in the middle, make my heart your Bethlehem. Be born in me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be born in our hearts this Christmas. May we, like Mary, be uh, willing servants for whatever you call us to. May we know that No matter how small we feel, you see us. That despite our imperfections, what you want more than anything is our willing presence. Amen.